I'm Justin Harmon, and this episode of Let's Talk Jackson is sponsored by Mississippi Federal Credit Union. For Let's Talk Jackson, I'm Todd Stauffer. My guest this episode is Robert Luckett, a Jackson native who graduated from Richland Public Schools, left for Yale University, earned his Ph.D. in history from the University of Georgia, and returned to Jackson 12 years ago to be a history professor at Jackson State University and the director of the Margaret Walker Center at JSU. Dr. Luckett is a member of the school board for Jackson Public Schools, was part of a team involved in the Mississippi History Museum and the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, and is the author of the book, Joe T. Patterson and the White South's Dilemma. Here's my chat with Robbie. We're recording this during COVID-19. It's, you know, we're months and months and months into the pandemic. Now it's fall. What's it like being a college professor at Jackson State University in this time? It, it's particularly strange because the fall semester, when you come back to campus for the fall from summer when campus is empty, there's this energy, right, that's traditionally on campus because there's all these kids back and everybody's out and it's the weather is beginning to get nice again and and there's none of that. Wow. Campus is essentially empty. And it's a, a, a really eerie kind of feeling um, at the same time that our enrollment is way up at Jackson State, which is an interesting phenomenon that, you know, because we're all virtual or nearly all virtual at Jackson State, campus is empty, but our, our numbers are, are higher than they've been in a long time. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic, especially for a fall semester when you're used to coming back for the fall and having this kind of energy. And there's always something that's, for me, particularly the first week of classes, when you go in that you just still kind of have a little bit of nerves and a little mm-hmm. bit of energy and you go in, it's just something exciting about it. That doesn't exist. Wow. You, you just don't, you don't have that. You don't have that experience. And I feel particularly bad for our freshmen, right, who their senior year was sidetracked and disrupted. And then they come to their freshman year of college and they're losing that experience too. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's a unique, unique moment. And um, one that I hope we emerge from sooner rather than later, but even our campus itself and, you know, the work that, that I get to do on campus, particularly through the Margaret Walker center, we're closed to the public until January at least. Mm -hmm. So even, the 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 programming and the the work we do with researchers and all of that is halted and it went from going 100 miles an hour to zero and it's been stuck at zero not zero because we still are are learning how to engage virtual programming and things like that but yeah it's unique well and so talk a little I'm, you know obviously people have been taking online college courses now for quite some time right um, you can get entire degrees. You can get. You can probably get through your entire career. I don't know how many PhDs people do online, but it, I'm sure it happens. Um, how hard is it, in particular, to kind of teach history online? What? How do you find that? I think it's really hard, um, and and I actually think there's, uh, it, especially before COVID, the the students who chose online learning, I, I see a lot of them. There, there's this kind of notion that. That it's empowering, particularly for working students and for for non-traditional students, and it gives them an opportunity to get a degree. And there's this kind of feel-good story about you know we're doing something for for these folks. But I also see uh, students who were taking online classes because they thought it would be easier. Mm. And in in fact, I'd argue that it's harder. It's harder on the students. I don't find uh, there there is something about being able to be in a college classroom 
in front of people and having conversations and, and asking questions and having them ask questions back to you and having them ask questions, having students ask questions of each other that is impossible to fully replicate online. At least I found that to, to be the case, especially in a world where you might, you know, for my classes this semester, being asynchronous, we're not meeting at a specific time um, weekly. You know, when I do hold virtual office hours and students show up on whether it's Google Meet or Zoom, and they show up with their audio muted and their 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 video off, and if you were in class, they would at least physically be in front of you unless they just stopped coming to class, which happens with college students too. But <laughs> generally, um, the capacity to have students in a classroom and to be in front of them and to teach. Um, for me, in a way that, you know, in, in some cases it's lecture-based, but m more often than not, a significant part of my classes are, are formed around conversation and questions and, and kind of intellectual um, queries. And that is so much harder to do in an online class. And I'd say for the students, it requires a lot more self-motivation uh, to be successful in an online class. Right. It requires them uh, to have discipline in a way that if you were in a traditional class and you were actually coming to class every week, there is some structure there. Well, at least you do that you. or you don't do that, right? So <laughs> you either go and sit in a chair and go to class and soak something up or it, you skip. Right? It, it, exactly. And as a, as a faculty member, if you're having a, a physical traditional class, you know who those students are. In an online class, you have no idea, at least until you see the quality of the work. Now, it does spell out pretty obviously who is and isn't doing the work, but it, I think it's a lot harder on our students. And, and honestly, I worry, too, right now at this moment of time, that even while our enrollment is up overall, that we have lost part of our student body who do not have equitable access to technology, mm -hmm to Wi-Fi, and that we're leaving behind a significant part of our traditional student body. And I know for a fact that I've got students who are trying to take my class online on their cell phones. Yeah. Can you imagine typing a research paper on a cell phone? I can't. I can imagine yeah. some some people who I've seen try it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is amazing to me how much some people get typed <laughs> on a cell phone. But no, that would be impossible. It, 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 and um, for them... And for so many of our students at Jackson State, just by the nature of our demographic being 92% African-American, being a state school in Mississippi that's, that's incredibly poor and that our student body represents a demographic that's the poorest demographic in the nation, right? That many of them, when they got to Jackson State, many, uh, I don't know how to quantify that number, but a, 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 not an insignificant number of our students' access to technology was on campus, it was the Wi-Fi on campus. It's the computer lab on campus. Right, I got right. you. Yeah. Um, and you take that away, mm -hmm. and they're the ones who the stories are, you got somebody in the Wendy's parking lot trying to pick up right. the Wi-Fi from the, the fast food restaurant and type in their papers on their cell phones. Yeah. Um, I worry about those students and that we're losing them even as our overall numbers are going up. How was, uh, and it's worth it to say, I mean, you know, JSU does have some remarkable facilities for the on, I mean, the library and the and the access to technology that you have on campus. It, it I hadn't thought about that, but you really do lose 
not just that classroom interaction, but all the other That's right. you know resources that come with being on a college campus. Yeah, we. I mean, our campus is a beautiful campus, and it has remarkable resources for our students. But when there are no students there, you just have buildings that are are, are sitting relatively empty. Wow. So, how long have you been uh, an academic I'm a professor teaching? I know you had a you this had to get year, there. So this a, is year twelve for me at Jackson State. So okay. all of a sudden, I've been there um, for a minute, and I came to JSU straight out of graduate school. And spent eight years in grad school. So if you add the eight years of graduate school right. plus 12 years of, of, of Jackson State, I've been at it for full-on 20 years now. And that was University of Georgia? Georgia, yeah. Okay. And then Yale before that. That's right. For the So you studied political science uh, undergrad. Did you think you were going to be a professor and a historian? I thought I was going to be a lawyer. But, but, I mean, and that's why people do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, and I was a, a political science major because I thought I was going to go to law school. And people who have political science degrees go to law school. <laughs> right. And it turns out I applied to law school. I actually got into Tulane Law and was going to go. And I got offered a job to work for two years at Yale as a Yale admissions officer covering the Southeast. I had 13 states that was my territory Hmm. to recruit from and to read applications from. And I made the decision to drop out of law school and take that job. And it was over the course of those two years that I began thinking about, what am I really interested in? What do I really want to do? I mean... And, and I actually looked at law school curriculum, and I thought, I really don't care about torts or contract law. <laughs> <laughs> I really do not want to spend my time studying this. You know, financially, I would have been in a better situation in the long run right. than I am after eight years of graduate school. But I, I realized that I wasn't going to be happy. And I had a very good mentor at Yale, an incredible um, professor, historian there named Glenda Gilmore, who's originally from North Carolina. And I'd taken all of her classes, and we were friends, and we would go get coffee from time to time. And she was the one who was like, well, if you don't want to go to law school, why don't you think about grad school? And that kind of made it click, and she knew my interest in civil rights history. I had written my, my senior thesis um, at Yale on Emmett Till. And the one the one line that my, my political science advisor at Yale wrote on my senior thesis was, this would be a great history paper, (laughs) 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 which I took as a clue to say that maybe I was in the wrong discipline. Um, And so I I pursued that and uh, ended up at the University of Georgia and had just a great experience there, great mentors there. And straight from there to, I literally finished in May of 2009 and July 1st, 2009, I started at Jackson State. Wow. That's cool. So that was coming home. That was coming home after being gone for almost 15 years. So tell me about growing up in Jackson. Well, I had a unique experience um, for people in Jackson. Uh, it turns out that um, the uh, I have a, a mother who's fairly well-known, uh, Jean Luckett, who owned a graphic design company um, with Happen Hill to Owen in downtown Jackson mm-hmm. for 30 years, communication arts company. And through her world and through her work, I was raised as a white guy, right, this cisgendered, uh, heterosexual, Christian white guy from Mississippi. I was raised in activist circles and around activist thought and with a consciousness that was very different than most people of of my demographic and, and upbringing. And that, you know, meant we were kind of set apart, um, especially when my father um, got a job as principal at Richland High School. Hmm. And when I was in, I guess, first grade, um, we moved uh, to the Richland area. We actually lived in Florence, and I went to Richland first through 12th grade. And that part of Rankin County was 
uh, still, and I would say still is today, a very segregated world. Um, and to have kind of the the upbringing that I had and the, you know, I, I, as a kid, I didn't understand why my mother hated Ronald Reagan. Because <laughs> everybody else I knew loved Ronald Reagan, right? <laughs> I was like, what's wrong with Ronald Reagan? Um, of course, now I have some, some, some better conceptions of what was problematic about his time as president. But... Um, so I had a unique experience growing up, and one that I, I valued. Um, and when the opportunity came to be able to go to college um, at a place like Yale, which I considered myself inc- incredibly lucky, people would ask me, you know, well, why are you leaving Jackson? Why are you leaving Mississippi? You could go to Ole Miss. You could go to Millsaps, where both of my parents went. Mm. And, you know, for me it was, this isn't about, I'm not making this decision because I'm ready to leave Mississippi, I'm making this decision because I get to go to Yale. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, all right, uh, I have this opportunity. I get to go there and be there and be in that environment. And, and, and honestly, I didn't know that I would ever be back. And once you choose the academic path um, for graduate school, there is no guarantee where you'll end up. Right, yeah. you, know, you don't get to say, well, I'm going to teach at Mississippi State because the one historian who teaches in your field at Mississippi State may have tenure and may not ever leave, yeah. right? And so you kind of throw yourself to the wind. And um, I was very lucky that there was a job at Jackson State in my field and that I applied for it and I got it. And honestly, I will say, as the white man applying to teach black history and run a black studies center at Jackson State, it helped that I had the, the parents that I had and the mother that I had because it provided street cred for me when I applied. I wasn't just some random white guy applying for this job at Jackson State. They're like, oh, you're jeans boy, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, the people, they knew. The, sure, oh, absolutely. They knew I who, think I knew your mother before I knew you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just kind of the the... The way it is, she's the the most famous person I know in Jackson, <laughs> um, and, and that helped. It, it really did help, and I I don't think I would have gotten the job if it hadn't been for that. And this is kind of an aside, but I know that your mother has, uh, in her design work, has done a lot of museums. And, Absolutely, and those kinds. Of, was that informative when you were younger, or was she doing that? Then? Oh, she was definitely doing that then, and you know. The first major project I really remember her working on was the Mississippi Pavilion at the 1984 World's Fair, this major exhibition about wow. the state of Mississippi and New Orleans. And so her, her, her career and their niche was really in exhibit design and, and museum design work. And so I didn't expect necessarily that I would end up doing similar work, but it has very much informed the work that I do and you know, did provide me with some important background in coming to the work. As someone who was trained as an academic historian, I was trained to, to research, to write, and to teach history, not to run museums or archives. I had been a patron of museums and archives. <laughs> but and a, a higher percentage of your life was spent in those places than, than it, some of us, right? Exactly. So, um, so that was important for well, sure. Well, and, that, so that, and that's interesting to me because did, did you walk into the Margaret Walker Center as part of that job, or did you gain that once you were here? Yes. Um, so it was a joint appointment. So when I applied for the job, I had to do two interviews. One was as director of the Margaret Walker Center, and one was kind of a traditional academic interview in the history department. And the job came with a joint appointment as director of, of the Margaret Walker Center and as then tenure-track assistant professor um, of history. Um, and 
you know, frankly, coming out of graduate school in 2009, where the economy was, I was happy to have a job. <laughs> like, with a couple degrees in history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no law degree. No, no exactly. With, yeah. with no law degree and, and a couple degrees in history. And, you know, the people are like, well, it's so amazing that you came back to Mississippi. I'm like, it's really, frankly, not that romantic of a story. I'd been in grad school for eight years and I needed a job and Jackson State offered me one. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm here and I'm grateful for that. And and Jackson State has been an amazing place for me professionally and for my development as a historian and and um, as someone who now very much considers himself to be a public historian. Um, that's just, it's been just incredibly um, rewarding and, and fruitful. Mississippi Federal Credit Union is a sponsor of Let's Talk Jackson, and I'm here with Justin Harmon from Mississippi Federal. So when you are a member of a credit union, there are all these benefits, obviously, that that kind of come to you. Sure. But you're also kind of a member of a nonprofit. How does that work? So when you become a member of the credit union itself, one of our core principles is being involved in the community. So when you do deposit your money and have an account with us, we're able to take those funds and actually help the community around us. So that could be anything from doing a cleanup day, helping Ronald McDonald House, helping Larry Batson Hospital for Children, doing things in our local community to support them and help them grow. And then your branch is on campus at UMMC. That's right. But then they can also do branching all over the country at credit unions, right? They can, actually. There's over 5,500 branches that they could do business in, just like they're doing business with us. Okay. So really no drawback, and then you kind of have this opportunity to, to help the community. Absolutely. All right. Mississippi Federal Credit Union. Uh, proud sponsor of Let's Talk Jackson. Let's get back to the show. Well, so earmark public historian, because I want to talk about what that means. The But first, I've kind of got two sides to this question. The Margaret Walker Center. Yeah. A, what is a center? Yeah. <laughs> what, what does that mean? And then really, you know, help us set the tone on, on who Margaret Walker was and, and why she's got a center, why that's yeah. important. Yeah, uh, Margaret, what an incredible life. Um, uh, just raised in, a, in an intellectual family. Her father would be a professor at what's now Dillard University. Um, her mother was a musician. She had her own concert orchestra in New Orleans. Mm. They introduce her to, to literature and to writing and to culture. And at the age of 13... Her parents take her to a um, reading and book signing by Langston Hughes. And at that point, Margaret's 13. She was born in 1915. So this is 1928. And he's Langston Hughes. This is like the height of the Harlem Renaissance, right? And her parents make her get in line to get her book signed. And they want her to give him some of her poetry that she had been writing. She's 13. You can imagine (laughs) the quality of this poetry. And he's Langston Hughes, Right. right? Yeah. So she gets first in, time this has ever happened to him, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no parent. one, no one has ever done this. So she goes through the line and she refuses. Like she does get her books on and she meets him, but she will not give him her poetry. <laughs> so her parents make her get back in line and do it again. Oh wow! And this time she does, and he becomes her mentor. And a few years later, he's getting her published in the NAACP's Crisis Magazine, her first poem, mm. a piece called "I Want to Write," and Du Bois is her editor. She's like 16. Du Bois is her editor, and Langston Hughes is getting her published. Like That's the type of world and and company that Margaret would keep. And it tells you also about the quality of her her writing and her intellect. And her poetry, For My People, would win the Yale Younger Poets Prize, her novel, Jubilee. Just uh, an incredible scholar, 
artist, writer, thinker, but who um, do somewhat to the nature of having a young family and having a husband who was a disabled World War II vet, she needed a, a job, needed a kind of a, not, I, I, it was not enough to be a writer, <laughs> right. right, at that time. Today, someone as famous as Margaret could make a life just as a writer, right? right? Um, but she needed a stable job, and that was teaching. And that brought her to Jackson State in 1949. And what's amazing, Margaret kept a diary for 60 years. It's 13,000 handwritten pages. It's all in our collections at the Margaret Walker Center, all digitized, too, so people can go online and, and search them. And in her diary, she writes about coming to Jackson in 1949. She comes by herself because it's a one-year appointment. Her family, her, her husband and kids are in North Carolina. And she leaves her husband and two oldest kids in North Carolina and takes her two youngest children to live with her parents in New Orleans. And she moves to Mississippi by herself in 1949. Wow. To Jackson, Mississippi, as this black female intellectual poet, world-renowned artist, that was revolutionary in a racist and sexist world right. of Jackson, Mississippi in 1949. And she'll spend the rest of her life here. 1949 till the day she dies in 1998, so 49 years. She may not have been born in Mississippi, but I think we can claim her. Um, <laughs> and stayed at Jackson State on the faculty for 30 years. And she wrote in her diary about how, I really hope I can make it at least two years in this appointment at Jackson State. <laughs> she did that and, and, and beyond. And so part of her career at Jackson State would include in 1968, this is a long answer to your question, include in 1968 founding the Institute for the Study of the History, Life, and Culture of Black People, okay. which is another really remarkable moment. This is probably not surprisingly, uh, you, you can imagine what we consider black studies, like on the college level, kind of mm -hmm. academic programs, African-American studies, Africana studies, black studies, these things that you can now major in, right? Those are products of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Those are products of young activists saying, I want to study black history, mm -hmm. right? And the, the program that is often credited with being the first black studies program in America is at San Francisco State in 1968. Margaret's doing the same thing at Jackson State in 1968. Okay. Wow. And I would submit to you that Jackson, <laughs> Mississippi in 1968 and San Francisco in 1968 were two very different places, right. um, including the fact that, of course, 68 is the year Martin Luther King is assassinated three hours up the road from Jackson. Yeah. So to do that work here, again, revolutionary, right? It, it took courage in a way. And, and the, so the Margaret Walker Center is that Black Studies Institute that Margaret founded in 1968, and we, we are very much her direct legacy. The um, and I'm, it's probably naive to ask the question, but was JSU enough of kind of an oasis for her to do that in? Or I mean, obviously, you know, it was part of Jackson and 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 interacted with Jackson, which we'll talk about in a little while. But the historically black colleges certainly were yeah. oases for kind of black intellectual thought, right? They were the only places that where it would be safe to be a black intellectual. And of course, Tougaloo is given a lot of credit in Jackson, um, deservedly so for being the safe haven for black thought and activism, right? But Jackson State was too. And the neighborhood around Jackson State, you know, if we considered the fact that not only do you have what was then Jackson State College, right? Um, 
you have the NAACP offices. Medgar's office is there, was there, and the NAACP office in Mississippi to this day is right beside the Jackson State campus, mm-hmm. right? COFO, the Council of Federated Organizations, right. which would operate, organize, and operate Freedom Summer in 1964, right there beside the Jackson State campus. The the churches, the communities, the 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 the, the, the residences, the businesses, the restaurants, the the university. Yes, all of that right there was a safe place. And even Margaret's neighborhood, because when she moves to Jackson and they buy a house on what was then called Gine Street, today it's Margaret Walker Alexander uh, Drive, um, that was one of the first kind of black middle-class subdivisions in Jackson. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she had the nicest house on the street. It was a two-story house and a double lot and, you know, this, this gorgeous place. And, and that was a safe haven. And it's not surprising, probably, when you understand that, that that's also where Medgar and Murley Evers would move when they come to Jackson, when he becomes the field secretary for the NAACP, to her street, the street Margaret lives on. Is that, so was, was Medgar shot on the street? On the street. At, wow. On, on the street. So I didn't Ma- know Medgar's that. house, where he was assassinated, they were neighbors. We have this beautiful picture of Margaret with Murley Evers at the Gine Street Garden Club, and they're replete with punch and pedophores, and they're, you know, <laughs> I mean, they were neighbors, they were friends, and there was this community there on Gine Street that, um, that that was important, for sure. And Medgar's assassination deeply impacted Margaret. So as a center now, what is that? I, I know you have her papers and, and all the work that she had done. What else happens? And, and again, I know it's a different time right now, but yeah, you sure. know, what happens there? So our fundamental work is as, an, as a research institute, an archive, and a museum. And that means collections that researchers use, like Margaret's personal papers, which we've digitized about half of her collection, and that's somewhere around 35,000 items that are online for, for researchers to be able to use. But also for people to, before COVID, actually physically come in and put their hands on, on papers and um, also artifacts that we've collected. Um, oral histories. We have a, a significant oral history repository, about 2,000 plus interviews that are in, in that repository that really started with my predecessor, Dr. Alpertine Harrison, in the 70s collecting oral histories. Mm. Some really important historic um, uh, collections there. Um, and a, as a museum that does public programming, our exhibits, our permanent exhibits, are a function of our collection. So we tell the story of Margaret and, 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 and other parts of our collection. But we also bring in traveling exhibits, and we bring in, you know, this next year, in 2021, we're bringing in the exhibit Evicted, which is based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Matt Desmond of the same name uh, about the story of eviction, which all of a sudden is this incredibly important yeah. uh, topic that, you know, I saw a, a story recently that suggests that somewhere upwards of 50% of Mississippians who are renters may face eviction this year because of COVID, right? Wow. What a staggering number. Um, so we do work like that, and we, we engage programming. Um, we are dedicated to the African-American experience, so um, that's what our, our work is generally themed around, a lot of civil rights history work, um, and we do now operate the COFO Center as well. So the COFO Civil Rights Education Center, which was the state headquarters for COFO during Freedom Summer, is a really wonderful museum that frankly was just exploding with um, visitors before COVID hit. Really? I mean, we were on track to have 10,000 visitors to COFO alone this past year. And for a space that is not very big, that's a lot of people <laughs> and a staff that's not very big. It is big. not very big, yeah. Um, 
Is um, that technically on campus? It's on Lynch Street, right? It, so it's owned by Jackson State. So yes, that is technically, technically campus. campus okay. um, and it's right next to the the baseball field is there. And, right. Um, and it's a wonderful place and a place where we're still we're still doing work there. Um, but we really are looking forward to the day when we can welcome people back into the doors and learn about the history of the movement uh, in Mississippi and in Jackson um, specifically. So that's what we continue to do. We do advocate, and there's we do not actually have a black studies program at Jackson State in terms of a degree-granting program, which may surprise some people. There's a long story uh, to that. Um, and part of our mission statement is to advocate for black studies at Jackson State to, and to eventually see that come to, to JSU. And there's been work along those lines over time, um, and I think we'll get there eventually. Um, but so that's our, our, our primary mission. So were, was the increase in interest about the COFO Center, did that, was that fed by the fact that we have the Civil Rights Museum and the History Museum here now? Or definitely. Part of it, you know? Definitely. You had, when, when the Civil Rights Museum opened, right, and you've got you know, 200,000 people coming in the first year to, to visit, those people are obviously interested in Mississippi civil rights history. And when they get done with the museum, they're going, well, where do we go now? Mm -hmm. And that really fed into COFO and particularly groups that were coming that were, you know, you, you, we've gotten all these uh, or tour organizers contacting us saying, well, we're coming to the civil rights museum and we heard COFO would be a great place to visit. Would you meet us? And that's been a, a lot of it. Large groups from literally all over the world coming to, uh, to visit because of their interest. And there is no doubt that the Civil Rights Museum played a, played a big part in the increased um, kind of attention. I think the uh, last time I was in that building was actually when I was in Leadership Jackson a few years ago. And you came in and greeted us there. And then you walked us on campus and told us the Gibbs Green story. Right. So this is the 100th... 50th. Yeah, of course it is. It's the, <laughs> 1970. It's, it's the maybe we should edit that because that was really stupid. Um, <laughs> I'll just leave it in and admit that I was stupid. Fiftieth um, anniversary. Tell that. Tell that story. Well, so through the Margaret Walker Center, over the last five or six years, we've taken on kind of the the mantle of commemorating the police shootings that happened on our campus in May of 1970. It turns out John R. Lynch Street, which is named for a former slave who becomes a United States congressman, used to run through the middle of our campus. And there were white motorists who would frequently use that as a thoroughfare to get from West Jackson to downtown. Mm -hmm. And there had been a series of incidents over the years where these motorists would shout racist epithets at our students. They would throw things out the windows. And one day in 1964, they hit a young student, Mamie Ballard. Um, who's still alive, Dr. Mamie Ballard Crockett, and, and around and doing fine as far as I know. Um, so they hit this young woman, and um, it leads to a, a series of protests um, to close John R. Lynch Street through our campus. And over the next five, six years, every spring, there would be annual protests to mm. close Lynch Street. And by 1970, you, you got to also balance this with the fact that you're in the middle of the Black Power movement that gets, mm -hmm. you know, the term Black Power gets coined in Mississippi, right, with Willie Ricks and Stokely Carmichael in 1966 during the Meredith March Against Fear. Um, the, the tenor of the protests are not nonviolent, mm -hmm. right? I do not want to suggest that they were violent, but they were more militant in a way that was not the kind of 
nonviolent direct action protests that we associate with the sit-ins and the freedom rides. Right. Like these were, if you threw something at a black student on the Jackson State campus, they were going to throw something back at you, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> that didn't mean that they were sitting there waiting to <laughs> assault white motorists. Right. It's just there was a different tone by this point. And the, the protests in 1970 became um, particularly, um, particularly virulent. Um, and in the middle of the night, city police and highway patrol marched on our campus after a, um, a, a dump truck had actually been driven in the middle of the road by someone that we don't know who did it. So we don't know that it was a Jackson State student, but they pulled it into the middle of the road and they set it on fire. So you have this dump truck in the middle of John Arlen Street as a, a means of trying to actually physically close the street. Okay. No one was injured in setting this dump truck on fire, but it, that's obviously a different kind of tone than you know a sit-in. Um, the city police and highway patrol responded by coming on campus in riot gear, not coming to put out the, fire, the, the dump truck that was on fire, but coming with the Thompson tank, which, mm. um, yeah. of course... Um, Alan Thompson, the segregationist mayor of Jackson, purchases this fully armored personnel carrier, which, as you know, is still in the Jackson Police Department right. firing range, right? <laughs> um, uh, that they come on campus with the Thompson tank. He purchased it ahead of Freedom Summer in 64, of what he called the, the invasion of civil rights activists that were, that were coming. And so in 1970, the city police come and highway patrol um, with the Thompson tank, and they march right up John R. Lent Street in the middle of the night. It's a Thursday night. It's close to midnight, and it will spill into the early hours of, of Friday, May 15th, 1970. And they turn in formation on Alexander Hall, a woman's dormitory. There were no protests going on. This was a college campus a Thursday night about midnight. You can imagine what college kids do on Thursday nights around midnight. They're flirting and telling stories and <laughs> listening to music and probably drinking beer or, you know, like they're, they're doing what college kids do. And um, what we do know likely um, started kind of the police assault was um, the police would claim there was a sniper on the fourth floor of the women's dormitory, which was absurd and never happened and has been completely disproven. Um, uh, and there's a long, a, a long history of attempting to criminalize victims in these stories mm -hmm. in America. Um, but a, a student threw a bottle at the police, and the bottle broke. And when the bottle broke, they opened fire. Mm -hmm. And they're going to fire somewhere around a little less than um, uh, 500 rounds of ammunition in about 28 seconds into the women's dorm. Um, it, 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 the, the miracle of it all is that only two people were murdered. Philip Gibbs, a junior political science major at JSU, and James Green, who was a senior at Jim Hill High School, who was walking home from work from a, a local grocery store on the opposite side of the street, which means that the police literally had to turn around and fire in the opposite direction of where the supposed sniper was right. to kill James Green. Wow. Twelve other people were shot, and you can imagine with that amount of ammunition, the, the debris, the flying and exploding brick and glass. There were dozens and dozens of other people who were injured, and some of them seriously so. Uh, no one was ever charged. The police left the scene. They picked up their shell casings. And the civil lawsuit that was filed um, and led by um, Constant Slaughter Harvey, um, mm. who's still around and mm. well-known uh, civil rights attorney, um, would go all the way to the Supreme Court, and they would lose. So there was never any justice for these families, for these people. 
And over time, we've become responsible through the Margaret Walker Center of, of commemorating um, this history. And so this was going to be the 50th commemoration this year. We had major events planned for, for 19, uh, for the, the class of 1970 um, and for, um, for, for May 2020 that obviously pretty much all had to be scrapped. And, and what is in the context of, of the pandemic, um, particularly tragic for Jackson State. I know it's tragic for everybody, but the class of 1970 didn't get to have a graduation. The commencement had not happened yet. They closed campus, class of 1970 gets their diplomas mailed to them. They were gonna get to walk this year. <laughs> wow. They were gonna get to go across stage in cap and gown and they were gonna be handed their diplomas. That would have been in May or? In May, yeah. in May commencement. Um, and we had, I was lucky enough to, um, to nominate and have bestowed honorary doctorates of humane letters on Philip Gibbs and James Green. Mm. So we were going to give the families these honorary doctors. It would have been just a really amazing moment, right? And that all gets canceled. Mm. And now the class of 2020 shares with the class of 1970 at Jackson State the distinction of being the only two classes who didn't get to have a graduation. Wow. We're still hoping to honor them. In fact, we had a, a meeting um, here in the last week or so um, with our provost at Jackson State talking about, well, what can we do, hopefully in 2021, um, a, a standalone event for the class of 2020 and the class of 1970 where we can actually, we can create a, a graduation for them. Um, we are hoping to do that, I remain committed to seeing that happen, and I know our administration does too. So you can't help but listen to you tell that story and think about how we're going through some things like that in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the going all the way to Supreme Court and, you know, the cops being held blameless for that. Um, you were telling me before we started recording that you've been doing a fair bit of podcast and media and been sort of asked the question. So just, you know, how do you contextualize what we're going through now as a country um, not just during COVID, although that's got to inform it, but, yeah. you know, people in the streets right now protesting what seemed to be some fairly, you know, uh, uh, familiar, yeah. you know, uh, tropes. <laughs> that, and that's not the right word. Uh, you know, the, the, the patterns, you yeah. know, and you're an historian, so how do you look at that? So it's been something that I, I have been thinking about and talking about a lot lately, and it, it turns out that the work I was doing around the Gibbs Green commemoration at Jackson State was just a couple of weeks before George Floyd's murder. Mm -hmm. Right. And then all of a sudden that happens. And because of my Gibbs Green work and because I'm in Mississippi and the nature of my, my scholarship as a civil rights historian, I've, I've been getting I've been fielding lots of requests to, to talk and, and to, to, to examine this. And the thing that I, I try to, to leave people with is really twofold. Um, one, we need to understand that we're in a moment of historic continuity in America. Um, I know the, the buzzword now is systemic racism. Right. But let, let's examine this history and understand what it means to be systemic <laughs> and, and how this pattern of history has repeated itself over and over and over and over again, right? And, and, and that it has supported the violence aimed at marginalized and specifically African-American communities has been uh, used to maintain the same system of power that's been in place since day one. Um, and I would argue, and I subscribe to the philosophy that we've always had a civil rights movement in this country, 
let's go back to 1619. The first enslaved people to arrive on the shores of Jamestown did not want to be enslaved. Mm -hmm. They wanted freedom, right? Um, And so somebody has been fighting for freedom and social justice and human dignity from day one. Um, And so we're not in this new moment. And um, there is continuity in both the story of oppression and violence and in resistance to that oppression, right? At Emmett Till, John Lewis in his last essay that was in the New York Times, if you saw that, said that Emmett Till was his George Floyd, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right. Um, and, and that there are, as there were then, young people at the forefront of the movement should not be surprising to us because young people have always been, uh, been essential to it. So understand, one, that we're in a moment of continuity and that, the, that these movements do ebb and flow. Like there, there are, there's high tide and there's low tide and there's moments of, of concerted action like in the 1960s in Mississippi and then there's moments where that kind of falls back out to sea. Um, and so we're all of a sudden in one of these moments, especially since the murder of George Floyd, where we're in a high tide of activism, where things can change. And that high tide in Mississippi in the 60s is going to lead to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, like real important changes um, in America that obviously also don't solve everything. Um, and so there will always be work to do and it will continue being Well, good. and it's interesting that you, you know, the thing that the thought I had there was because there's also a... Uh, you know, we're in it right now. So it's also very scary, Yeah. you know, because you don't, sometimes the result is, you know, is a fascist regime regime, or sometimes it's, you know, uh, you talk about the civil rights movement and getting through that process. Well, what happens right after that is when Mississippi's forced to integrate its schools, finally in 1970, they do everything they possibly can to actually do the exact opposite. Absolutely. And, we live with that legacy now because it didn't go right for whatever reason. And whoever's, I mean, I'm saying that I'm, be, I'm using a very passive voice on that <laughs> purposely because we can't quite get into it. But it's like, you know, so the things that we're doing actively right now, you know, how can history help us understand how to make the right decisions and some of the things that we can't control or, or we're not at least organized enough to be powerful enough to take on, maybe. Well, and I think um, that word power has a lot to do with it. Like the people who have the most power in this country are, have a vested interest in not seeing the, the goals of the movement now and then achieved, right? And, and they very much are invested in, specifically in Mississippi in 1970, very much invested in seeing public education fail because if you educate the masses, and I argue that the number one civil rights issue of our day is equitable access to the highest quality education possible for all children. Yeah. Like if there's equitable access, equitable opportunity. Um, but knowing that if you educate people that there was a reason why it was illegal to teach slaves to read, right? right. <laughs> like education is a source of power. Um, and so it's has not ever been in the interest of the powerful um, to to see these causes advanced. Let us be very clear, Martin Luther King was not a hero in white American society when during his lifetime. He was not. That is a development that has occurred in the last 20, 30 years, right, that he's become this, seen as this great martyr for American history. He was, obviously, for the black community and for people who were engaged in activist causes, but for mainstream white, white America, Martin Luther King was not a hero in 1968 at the time of his assassination, mm-hmm. right? He was the enemy and, and was described as such. And so it's not surprising that you see pushback and resistance. And of course, 
Um, the, the second kind of point that I would make here is that what we're seeing, and it's very obvious now, is that it's not so much a, a story specifically about Mississippi or racism and bad guys in the South, but it's an American story. Yeah. And that it, it, is, it, it is occurring in a context that has been condoned by Americans and, and in collusion with Americans um, over history. And there's no more obvious kind of sign of that than what is going on these days in our federal government. And of course, coming out of the civil rights movement, um, uh, the modern movement, like the end of that kind of major ebb, you get Richard Nixon. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then you get Ronald Reagan, right? Um, so again, continuity in our history and in a history that is an American story and, and how do we, you know, make change slowly? How do we succeed in this? We, we make demands that, um, that are achieved and achievable in this moment, and we continue to push for more police reform. You know, Brianna's law in Louisville, the, the city council um, creating this law that now bans no-knock warrants. That's a step, right? <laughs> right? Like, that's something. That's not going to fix everything. Taking down the Mississippi flag. That's a step. It's important. I do believe symbols matter. It's obviously not going to solve everything, but it is it, it is a victory to a certain extent and something we should celebrate because the victories are hard to come by. Right. <laughs> and it feels good to have a win every now and then when it comes to these things. And so the, the change happens slowly. Um, and we'll, we have to continue to, to fight and, and demand recognition of the basic human dignity of all people. Well, and I, and I would posit that a big part of that is understanding the context in which these things exist now. And, mm. you know, you go to the flag, I, I don't know exactly how important it was to people to understand that the Mississippi flag was flying because of white supremacy that was re-implemented after Reconstruction right. in order to, you know, tamp down the power that African Americans had gained after the Civil War. I don't know exactly how much that was in the conscience of people who ultimately, you know, were protesting and then, you know, the sports leaders and the and the players that were going to the Capitol that probably had a big impact on the legislators. And then the, just the special circumstances they were in that allowed them to kind of quickly make that happen. But I am going to suggest that some people talking about that helps. You Absolutely. Know? And so I'm just going to say that I appreciate what you do <laughs> because I think the contextualization of it is important for us to maybe not make the same mistake again. And maybe it's even to know more. Just to, how do you... To me, that's the power of history. That, that, that's why I do history. That's why historians do the work that we do, so that we can take the past, contextualize it, and understand our present, where we are right now. And if you don't know that the Mississippi flag um, that was adopted in 1894 had never flown over Mississippi before, was adopted specifically as a symbol of, of Jim Crow, which is being invented in large part in Mississippi with the Constitution of 1890, the state Constitution of 1890, that gets copied across the South as part of the Mississippi plan, right? That if you, we, we don't know that history, we can be, uh, you know, comfortable in assuming, oh, it's just part of our heritage. We've always had this flag that somehow it's, it's harmless, right? But if, but if you actually know the history and you know what it meant and know what it was used for, 
and know, by the way, that for the people who want us to, to put it as a, uh, as a referendum, like it should have been voted to take down, the state legislature did not enact it as a referendum. They did it on their own in 1894. Yeah. And the majority of the population in Mississippi in 1894 was African-American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if they had been allowed to vote on it, it never would have been the state flag. That was that was the challenge that they were meeting with the Mississippi plan in the first place. Exactly, yeah. exactly. No. I, I I should have ended there because that was beautiful. <laughs> but the one thing I didn't really bring into this was you 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 had some uh, significant involvement in the the two museums as they came on board. Right. Can you talk just a little bit about that and what that's meant for Jackson? Yeah, just so proud of those museums, and um, I was lucky enough to be on a, a team of six scholars who reviewed all of the um, exhibit materials, all of the, the text, all of the AV that went into the Civil Rights Museum. And, you know, the, the thing that was remarkable was that for a, a state museum that, frankly, most people around the country who were observing it from the outside didn't think Mississippi could pull off in a way that was, that was really committed to an accurate version of history, the, the state of Mississippi, to their credit, and the state legislature kind of stayed out of the business of planning it mm-hmm. and, and producing it. And that was the best thing they ever could have done. And I was very proud to, to watch it develop. I was proud to, to see the community meetings that were held long before the first design ever you know went in place, where my archivist at the center initially led these, Miss um, Angela Stewart, these community meetings around the state saying, what do you want to see <laughs> in this museum? And uh, the theme that you heard over and over again repeated was that we just want y'all to tell the truth, mm-hmm. uh, right? <laughs> just just be honest. Right. And if you spend any time in the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, there's a depth to the honesty there, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it is deeply honest yeah. um, and powerful in a way that uh, you can't help but be impacted um, when you walk through there and, and, and engage it. And, and I think that impact also is is very good for Mississippi in a number of ways, obviously. It doesn't hurt that it's drawing over 100,000 people a year to downtown Jackson. At least prior to COVID, let's hope that we can get that kind of um, momentum back. But also what it means from an educational standpoint, and this, again, this notion of my thinking of myself as, as a public historian, uh, frankly, the the work that I do in the ivory tower as a historian will never have the impact on society that this museum can possibly have in Mississippi and on new generations of children who are going to walk through the doors of that museum. Um, and it, it, it's easy to be I guess a little idealistic about it, and 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 have these kind of high hopes, but there's something to be said that that museum is going to be there long after we're gone, right? And when I was asked about it fairly often, kind of in the early days of its opening in 2017, you know, in the context of memorials and monuments, we just built a 90 million dollar monument in downtown Jackson that I think reflects all the values that we want to see reflected. in in a modern Mississippi. And that is a remarkable accomplishment. I want to thank Robert Luckett for joining us on the program. A link to the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State University and his book on Amazon can be found in the show notes. And you can find more information on this and other episodes of Let's Talk Jackson at letstalkjackson.com, as well as on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Let's Talk Jackson is powered by the Jackson Free Press and sponsored by Mississippi Federal Credit Union. This episode was edited by Courtney Moncure. Our executive producers are Donna Ladd and Bo York. For Let's Talk Jackson, I'm Todd Stockton.